Spiritual life manifested differently through the centuries, and its legacy of diversity emerges today in the world's great religious traditions. Christianity in particular has a strange and varied history, but many churches have lost the spirit of vibrant innovation of the past. This is Logosish. Today we talk to Michael Beck about his work creating new ways to build spiritual communities. Hey guys, one quick announcement before we get started. Our episode is a little long this week, since we're going to be off next week. We'll be back with a new episode after that. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to Fresh Expressions. This is John. I am joined today by Brian and... John, start over. Why? Because you totally misnamed our podcast. Yeah, we're the Fresh Expressions. Did I say Fresh Expressions? You did. You know what? I think we need to keep that in there. (laughs) We just need a blooper reel at some point. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. This is John. I'm joined today by Brian and Garrett. We're already having a good time. We're having a lot of fun. In a second, we'll be talking to Reverend Michael Beck, the Reverend Wild One, who's going to be discussing with us a number of things, including digital ministries, the future of church, what is a fresh expression, how do I talk to people I don't know, whatever we can come up with to ask him. Brian and Garrett, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing really well. We are in the midst of packing boxes, so my house is chaos, and the dogs have found this really cool game of running through all the boxes like a maze, especially when we're trying to put things into boxes. So it's been, it feels like, you know, American Gladiator a little bit in the house, so it's been a lot of fun. Garrett, I really was hoping you were about to say that it was like The Floor is Lava, totally the best youth group game anyone's ever played. And uh, things are going well here. Just had a meeting this morning with a predominantly African-American congregation uh, near us. And it is, uh, we're going to partner together to do a emergency housing ministry. So we're using old parsonages to make a, to make a difference in our community. That's really cool. That sounds like a, some really, really awesome and good work, Brian. Garrett, I have to say your comment about American gladiators reminds me of a friend of mine who once told me that the terrible house that they rented out had a bunch of holes in the walls. And at some point they started making new holes in the walls in order to be able to use all the holes in the walls to play the floor is lava. Oh gosh. And so they, they just climbed on the walls from like room to room and it has made me want to like have a house that just has rock wall in place of different kinds of drywall or something like that as my, you know, thing so I can just climb around all day long. Maybe some, you know, bars that are like cemented in the ceiling or something like that. You got plenty of room in that room that you're sitting in, John. I don't know what's taking you so long. Well, it's not my house, so that would be part of it. (laughs) So, Michael, how are you doing today? We are so excited to have you on. You are the Reverend Michael Beck, and I'll let you take away the rest of the intro from there. Oh, well, thank you, guys. I'm so grateful to be with y'all today. I am just coming out of the COVIDian tomb and um, just kind of went through... A pretty it was pretty rough i had to do a little overnight hospital stay and it was pretty heavy duty so but 
I'm feeling much better now. I also, my wife and I have a bunch of boxes in our house. We're not changing appointments, but we're moving into another house to be closer to the church that we were just kind of picked up this last year and starting there. But really excited about the way that throughout my two week, a little bit more struggle with COVID, my lay leaders, um, who we, we call a lot of them pastors, even though I know we're not supposed to, but um, we're not real big on uh, we do a lot of rule blending, but anyway, they, they just jumped in preaching, teaching, uh, sustaining living room church and all of our outdoor outside worship gatherings, like didn't, didn't miss a beat. So I just believe more and ever, more than ever in the priesthood of all believers. And in this idea that every follower of Jesus can cultivate new Christian communities and that could heal the world. Um, and I've seen that. So really excited to be with you guys. That's awesome. That's really cool. So can you tell us a little more about your church and your sites in particular? Yeah. So I'm at Wildwood United Methodist Church. My wife and I are co-pastors there, Jill Beck. She's the real brains of the operation. And we've been at Wildwood for 10 years. And we, this last year, picked up St. Mark's United Methodist Church, which is the church that baptized me, that pulled me out of the gutter, that when I got out of jail, it's the place where I went. And uh, Pastor Dan told me, well, I'm glad Jesus saved your soul, but AA will save your ass. So meet me at the noon meeting tomorrow, the church that reared me and loved me into the faith. So I am now their pastor, which is weird and also very exciting and, and cool in many ways. And it's a church that we dwindled down to about 20 or so folks. And I just don't want to see that church close. It has so much uh, potential. It's done so, so much kingdom work for so many years. On the spectrum of institutional metrics, it's not a church that's lighting the world on fire for Jesus, but in a kingdom sense, every day feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, uh, around the clock recovery meetings. We house a reentry center on the property. Uh, we, we house a sober house uh, as well and a thing called Open Arms Village for, for men re-entering prison and need, uh, who are experiencing homelessness. So just crazy amounts of ministry going on out of the place and not a lot of support as far as congregationally speaking. So a great challenge, but with lots of excitement. And then I also work for the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church. I'm the cultivator at Fresh Expressions. I'm the Fresh Expressions U.S., director of remissioning. We just made up a word because we didn't really know what to call what I do. And I'm a professor at United Theological Seminary where I keep trying to steal Garrett to come get a doctorate with me in Fresh Expressions and Church Renewal. And so we just designed a whole house of studies in Fresh Expressions at United. And we've had amazing interest from people all over the country who are packing into the house of studies, just exceptional um, students um, from all kind of across the theological racial spectrum. So it's been really cool to be a part of that as well. Very cool. That's really awesome. And, you know, I, I know from having known you for a little while that you have just a, a really incredible personal story um, that you hinted at a little bit right there. But can you talk to us about what what is remissioning? Like, what is the what does that word mean? Since I, I mean, I guess you got to define it since you essentially made it up, right? So, so what does that mean, and what does it mean to you in particular? Because it's your word. Yeah, it's kind of like logo-ish, right? 
that's what theologians do, right? We make up words. Paul made up a word, theonuktos, to describe the scriptures, right? God breathed. But so I think the whole revitalization conversation and the word revitalization, it's really caught up in the ideology of progress, which is this idea that we can just, through our human ingenuity and technology and this part of the great American, you know, Euro tribal colonialism right that we can build the new world through our through our skills and the church has got really entwined in that idea of progress and their revitalization is about packing butts and pews and making something that used to be healthy back vital again but when we think about vitality it's usually we're thinking about butts and pews nickels and noses you know how much money's coming into the plate and what I'm trying to say with remissioning is we need to really rethink what the health of a congregation looks like in a post-Christendom world. We need to not think about it as internal tinkering, um, which each of us here, I'm sure we can say, we know that just doesn't work, right? Like if I do better preaching, better coffee, better programs, somehow my church will go back to the glory days that, um, you know, before the decades and decades of decline. Hey, I think better coffee is definitely a way to get more people in church. Well, I agree. I agree on that. But that's mostly because churches serve bad coffee. A lot of churches serve bad coffee. <laughs> this is true. So, and Michael, I was about to make a joke a minute ago, a kind of sad joke about how it sounds like your churches are doing a really amazing amount of stuff. And yet it feels like that should sort of be the minimum standard for what we do. Hmm. And, you know, I really I find a lot of what you're you're saying right now just very powerful and significant and, and important for the future of Christianity and the church. But can you talk a little bit about what you mean by post-Christendom? Sure. And let me conclude this remissioning, this one thing I want to say. Remissioning is about so it's really focused in the, the missio dei stream of thinking, right, that that the church doesn't have a mission. The church is God's mission. The mission is an attribute of God that we join into that, right? And so remissioning is not the internal tinkering stuff, but we go out in the community. We join what the Holy Spirit is doing there. And by doing that, and we Wesleyans with our prevenient grace, right? We know that God's already out there. God's beckoning and calling us to join what God's already doing. And as we do that, that spills back into the congregation. It starts to have some really sometimes weird but beautiful things that transform the inherited church too so that's remissioning it's joining god's mission and then that remissionizes awakens the spirit of mission in the, the church so post-christendom uh, is really at, uh, for much of christian history now really you could trace it back to constantine uh, who in the 300s a.d made uh, the church, the official religion of Rome, and that changed things significantly. Up until that point, Christians were meeting in caves, kind of subversively scratching fish on the wall. No professional clergy. They were meeting wherever they could in caves and uh, homes mostly, uh, which we see that in Acts 2. That already starts where they're meeting in the home and the temple till the temple's destroyed in 70 AD. So then the idea becomes, you know, professional clergy, building buildings, attractional model of church, big grand building structures. If you build it, they will come. And then that's been most of church history. We've been in that Christendom model where in the United States in particular, this particular set of forces that Gil Rendell talks about, the aberrant time, the aberration. So these ideas of, of a semi-Christian 
way of thinking uh, mixed with the ideology of progress and the attractional Christendom way of being the church. Now we're in a post-Christendom, mean, meaning no longer is the church at the center of society and life. And where there was this assumption, like if you think about blue laws, where people would go to church and you couldn't do anything else on the weekends because that was the expectation. Good people, good business folks in the community went to church and participated. So that's no longer the deal. So post-Christendom is the way that we define that. And the, one of the largest mission fields in the world is the, is the West and the United States in particular. Yeah, I think for me, working with you down here in Florida has really opened my eyes and confirmed a lot of my discontent with sort of how our inherited church sort of got me to participate and kind of going through the motions. And I was always asking questions like, why? Why do we have to do this? Or I want to see what's behind the curtain and why won't you let me see those things? And it really, uh, as much as it it helped me and guided me. Um, there was still a lot more than I thought God was doing. And so the remissioning, joining the mission of God really captured my attention um, and really has developed and, and developed my call in such a way that this is, this is essentially what I want to do now. Um, so soon you'll probably get me into your program, Michael. But as for now, I think adopting that childlike mind that Jesus calls us to. And I'm misplacing the the reference in my mind. I want to say Luke, but it's probably elsewhere. But, you know, like we have to be like children to, to come into the kingdom of God. Mm. Um, and that just makes the world creation to me like a giant playground. Um, there are all of these things that we have in our neighborhoods and, and societies that you can see like, oh, it's a jungle gym. It's the swing set. It's the sandbox. And uh, sort of studying from our youngest disciples, being mentored by them really does sort of help me think about like, this is how I can use, you know, church interactions, building relationships and being present where God is working. So it's kind of freeing at the same time. So I really do appreciate that about Fresh Expressions. Michael, uh, a couple moments ago, you you talked about kind of like this culture that has existed for the better part of two millennia that through systems and culture just kind of packed people into this come to our buildings kind of model that if I'm perfectly honest, has nothing to do with Jesus. Um, <laughs> so how, how is what you're trying to do kind of the opposite of that from just like a cultural perspective and uh, kind of disregarding institutions in that sense? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think that I want to be careful here and say that there is still a need and space for that. So we talk about the blended ecology of church because it is biblical, a Jerusalem mode of God's being where God's drawing all people to himself on the holy hill, Mount Zion and you know, all the nations will stream to your light and all that. So there is an attractional form of worship and, and God drawing people to a space, right? But the most images of God we see throughout the, the, the Bible is a God on the go, right? The tabernacle God moving around with the people. And then if Jesus is the ultimate embodiment, as we believe, incarnation, God in flesh. So Jesus spends some time in the temple and the synagogue. He didn't always have a great run there right? He had his temple tantrum and 
a couple times in synagogues. They tried to throw him off the cliff and stuff, but but he was there, right? And he was teaching, and it was central to his his life and ministry. Like he was in the temple as a as a child, and you know, uh, in the, his last days of his life. So that is there. But I think what we've done by making it only about packing people into a building, uh, which is not what Jesus did. I think you're totally right, Brian. He, m- most of his worship experiences happen out on, uh, you know, in a boat out by the lake and on a mountainside. The greatest sermon ever delivered wasn't from a pulpit or a temple space, but from a mountain uh, hillside. Right. So but there is this both andness that we need to lift up and see the inherited church and the, in the attractional way of churches is also good and beautiful and true, but we have to see that is equally important. And I think here's where we kind of missed the mark. It's equally important to disciple everyday followers of Jesus to cultivate new Christian communities in the spaces where they do life with the people they do life with in a contextually appropriate way, just like Jesus did and not try to f- do the extractional approach, which is the only way you can come to know Jesus is by me removing you from your social web and bringing you back to the compound where you can be formally Christianized. So that is really a challenge for people to kind of rethink that. But we can, the, the beauty of it is in the splendid ecology, we do both well and one feeds the other and the other feeds the other. So it's a symbiotic relationship. And if you look in like Acts 15, where it's just starting to Antioch in Jerusalem, and they're coming together and saying, how do we live together? This Antioch thing is very weird. They're not being circumcised. They're not following the 613 Levitical restrictions. How do we nurture that and unleash it, but keep it tethered and in relationship to us? And so you see that, you know, sent, distributed mode of church living alongside the attractional, traditional, if you will form of church and figuring figuring out a way to live together. Sure. And the the institution recognized that the spirit moved in a place that wasn't institutionalized, uh, so to speak. Right. And that may be where we're stuck in the West, right? Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> there's a hesitancy. And I, I mean, I get this all over the place, a hesitancy to call what those folks are doing church because we're so stuck in that idea that church has to be with pews and hymnals and in the, in the formal space. So yeah. Have we really authorized the new Antioch thing? That's and not the new, but the, the old Antioch way. Uh, I'm not so sure we have. So let's take a minute and, and do some definitions. Cause we're dropping a couple of phrases that are ideas that I think we're all pretty used to referencing mm-hmm. uh, that may not be familiar to everyone. So let's talk a little bit about what you mean in particular, Michael, by fresh expressions, the inherited church, the distributed church, blended ecologies, like like that kind of web of words and how they connect together. Sure. Good. Thank you, John. Thank you for keeping us in check where we run off into our Christianese. The fresh expression is kind of the textbook definition of it is a form of church for people who are not members of any church. And this movement started in the United Kingdom, and the fo- our friends from the UK are from our future. So they're about 30, maybe 40 years ahead of us in the, the decline of the church in post-Christendom. And so in 2004, Bishop Graham Cray and a couple, um, an ecumenical group got together and 
did a study because they noticed that these new Christian communities were forming in like taverns and bars and coffee shops. You would love that, John. And these new Christian communities are like, what do we call these? And there were some kind of early precedence of these things. But um, that mission-shaped church report became a bestseller. It's one. It's the only church report that I know of that's become a bestseller in recent history. I'm not really into reading church reports, but if you haven't read that one, it's really good. But so they just recognized that no longer can just the attractional way of church in, in a post-Christendom context work. And the Holy Spirit is doing something here with these little new Christian communities. And so to try to give that a name, they called it Fresh Expressions, which comes out of the Anglican Declaration of Assent to proclaim the gospel afresh in every generation. And so they took that statement and turned that in this language of Fresh Expressions. And then in the report, they advocate for a mixed economy of church was the first language that we were using. And that if you think about a mixed economy um, of like private and public sector, like that would be something that may be familiar but now applying that to the church, so you need a mixed economy of attractional and missional forms of church, uh, fresh expressions and inherited modes of church, whatever kind of and language you want to use there. But then what I've been trying to do is get away from that mixed economy language. So my first book, Deep Roots, Wild Branches, was to try to suggest a blended ecology may be a little bit better language because Jesus use this agrarian terminology of seeds and sowers and trees uh, to talk about the church and community. So why don't we not just take all the, the um, words that the, the business sector gives us and try to have a little bit more Jesus-y language. So blended ecology is this idea of, you know, a, a, a tree of deep roots and wild branches. So the inherited church, and that's from Romans 11, Paul's image of the church. So traditional church and, and rooted in, in, in uh, the, the matriarchs and patriarchs of our faith and the Torah and the fulfillment of all of that through Jesus, but also these wild branches, these new little Christian communities cropping up everywhere and then grafting those things together in kind of a new ecosystem. So that's that's all this language that we're throwing around like people would know that. Speaking of new places, you know, we find ourselves in COVID times. So the magic of this podcast, it exists in three states uh, all at the same time due to technology. So given my past experience with Fresh Expressions, it's a lot of relation building and that's complicated now. So, mm. you know, how how is the movement uh, adapting and making space in new realms um, that already exist? Yeah. Great question. So when COVID hit, so we have 15 of these fresh expressions that were are out of Wildwood. They're, you know, one's in a tattoo parlor called Tattoo Parlor Church. One's in a Moe's Southwest Grill, a yoga studio, a running track that like community centers, uh, just all over the place, right? So all of those spaces that we had really become dependent on and we're trying to be an incarnational presence within were shut down with COVID. So we lost, and this is one of our great failures, that we didn't create a better, more robust communication system and, and, and way to kind of sustain interaction in between those gatherings. So it's been really hard to kind of continue that community without us having the space and the practice that we are really centered around, whether that be drinking coffee together, eating burritos, or getting tattoos. So all of that was lost. 
But the amazing thing is that the principles of fresh expressions, which is find the third place. So that neutral community place where people already gather to do stuff together. And then we kind of share our faith uh, when it's appropriate and in the, the right time. So we found that actually the digital space, and I, I know that people have been doing church digitally for decades and have an online church and all that. We're mostly I myself and many others are kind of new to the dance, if you will, but that digital space is its own third place and community can form there, real authentic community and that discipleship can happen there. And, and so what we've been thinking about lately is how could we center um, like worship and discipleship and sharing our faith in the digital space and building community there where we then equip people. So it almost flips the idea and the attractional becomes the digital. And then we're equipping and empowering people to go out and cultivate these new little Christian communities in their physical context. And so we've just found like we planted living room church, which is just a Facebook campus. Um, it started that way, but then it started to kind of take on a life of its own. And we started connecting with people all over the country and they're like, Hey, we want to become members of this thing. What does that look like? And so then we had to figure out, network partners and have people come into our live service and do their vows and people that are never going to step foot in any of our physical gatherings, but are very much a, a part of our church and want to be belong to the church. So a couple great advantages in, in the digital space is for one, I think for digital, this is, this is true for digital natives, not so much for digital immigrants. But I think probably each of you would be in the digital native category where you kind of grew up with screens, computers, digital technology accessible, right? So we sustain community through text messages and Zoom meetings and FaceTimes and and like some of my closest friendships and my covenant group and all of that. We've been using digital technology to sustain our relationships. Now, I think digital immigrants might not have that same experience of digital technology. And so you get this kind of dichotomy of uh, is virtual real and I think that's a missional cul-de-sac for, for churches like don't even I, I, I absolutely believe that virtual is real and one of the sociologists Manuel Castells who started to be quite prophetic about all this he started writing about this back in the 90s about real virtuality that for emerging generations there is no distinction between real and virtual so then the next question becomes, how do we enter into digital space as an incarnational presence, not force colonialism, which is us trying to do what we do in a traditional church, but now we're doing it online. That's like its own version of colonialism. We're trying to bring into the digital space, import this thing that's kind of foreign. But how do we enter into the digital space with people, form relationships in meaningful ways, grow in our faith together in the digital space? Um, and so now Fresh Expressions, that's what the, we were attempting to do in the Digital Age book is try to think about now, how do we in this new territory, um, because the, the implications of COVID are not going to go away in our lifetime, right? This is going to be a long tail situation. So how do we kind of live into that now? So can you talk a little bit about the specific practices that you implemented, especially for the folks who you spoke about a minute ago who were interested in joining and interested in figuring out how to participate 
and connect, but connect from afar. That would ne- not necessarily ever be in kind of a strictly physical or even a hybridized space between physical and digital, but would solely interact through digital means. Yeah, that's good. And I, it really requires us to change how we do worship, for one. And I wouldn't even really start with worship, but there is a way to do worship in an incarnational way where it's it's um, it's more of a, a dialogue than a monologue and inviting people to speak into everything that we do and making it interactive, not us, you know, the professional telling everybody what they need to do or know. So some of the things are like trying to help our people think about how do we go into digital space and not fall into the trap of like in the attention economy, your attention is monetized and there are these third party, you know, people trying to mine your your data. Basically, data is the new oil of the information age. And so we're just mindlessly on our screens. That's not going to be good for anybody. So how do we intentionally enter into digital space prayerfully? and make it not so much about the algorithm says what's on your mind, but how do we invite conversation and find out what's on other people's minds? What are their needs? What are they thinking about and doing? And so interestingly enough, there's a really cool model for this in early Wesleyan, uh, in the early Methodist movement with this idea of societies and classes and bands. Yeah, so in early Methodism, we have this idea of the field preaching event where John Wesley writes in his journal a lot about awakening. Now, for in the in the new world, we're not going to just go into social media platforms and start like field preaching in the way that he did. But we have to think about how are we inviting um, spiritually open people to be in conversation together and to offer graceful forums where that can happen. So it's less about telling; it's more about listening. But then when we find those interested people around some common passion, hobby, interest, I'll give you a super practical example in a minute. So bear with me for just a minute. But then how do we invite them into a next level of relationship? So the society meeting was for people that were saying, yeah, I think maybe I do desire to flee the wrath to come in Wesley's words. But maybe now it's, you know, I think I am spiritually open to some conversation about Jesus or the church or whatever. And then as people, we collect people in that space and we, we, you know, sit in a circle together with Jesus in the middle and we kind of field questions and, and things that people are wrestling with. Then people may say, hey, I think I'm becoming a Christian. What do I do now? And then we need to have some kind of forum to invite them. So here's, a, here's an example. So those would be societies, classes and bands, the way that Wesley kind of structured his discipleship system. So in yoga, yoga church. So we do this every Friday, 9 a.m. Karen, lay pioneer, leads yoga church. Um, we'll do a brief little devo in the beginning. We let everybody know, hey, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be any religion or you can be of any religion you want. We're just going to talk briefly from a devo from the Christian scriptures. We're going to have yoga. And Karen's going to lead us in the spiritual practice of yoga. So we do that and we invite people. If you have anything, we can pray for you, whatever, you know, pop that in. And then we, we said, well, now we got these hundreds of people joining for this. They're really enjoying it. Some people are saying, how do I give money to this? How do I be more involved? So then we created what we call conversations for a difference. So we said, hey, after yoga next week, anybody who's interested, it's an opt-in. We're not forcing it on anybody, right? Anybody who's interested, we're going to have a Zoom link. You can join in. We're just going to have spiritual conversations around 
what spiritual practices are sustaining you during the pandemic? So then people come into that space. You know, most of them just come for the yoga. A, a good group, 20 or so, come and say, you know, here. And some people are talking about Mother Nature is their higher power. And this is how they're staying sane. And, and some people are talking about Jesus. And it's all across the board. So we're all just having conversations about, you know, spirituality, prayer, what's going on. So we're building community, right? Um, and then some people may say, you know, I really, I'm, I'm kind of feeling, what else do y'all do? And, and so we can say, well, you can join us living room church on Wednesday nights. We have a worship experience or uh, we have a digital version of pause the praise where you get your pet and put them on a Zoom screen. And we talk about questions like, if God was a dog breed, what would God be? And I always go with a pug because pugs have to be carried around and worshiped at all times. Uh, and then we have interesting conversations around that. And we're building relationship. We're orienting our, our conversation around God and the kingdom and, and whatever that looks like in people's incarnational language. So that would be a really long answer to your question, John. I'm sorry. But so those kind of things. And, and um, our team sustains our connection through weekly Zoom meetings, a text chain, encouraging each other, uh, in, inviting, hey, if you're struggling with something, you know, let's talk about that and checking in on each other. How goes it with your soul? To me, it's it's so fascinating how that is exactly what Wesley did. It's exactly kind of the mission and model that Jesus used. And most of the time we just ignored it, <laughs> like as though it wasn't a significant way to like impact people's lives. And I feel like local churches should be kicking themselves but then they look down on it and say, I want my Sunday school. Uh, um, and that was not, that is not a representation of anyone at the garden where I serve or any other church where I've ever served. But uh, that was my generic old man church voice. Uh, sorry about that, friends. And they want their coffee that was all made in 1920 there as well. And like those giant containers that are like 7,000 degrees. So, uh, I mean... So, Michael, how do we get people excited about that kind of engagement? It, well, people in the church to be excited about this kind of engagement, because you have to start somewhere with with folks. You got to start small and dream big. And I mean, you guys are describing the great tension of my life. And it, it's a tension to be managed, not something that's ever going to be resolved, I don't think. I have been blessed with a, a small group of people, each of the churches I've served that had shining eyes and they were like, yes, we do think that part of our faith should include not just gathering in this building, but, you know, connecting with people. And we have people that we love deeply that are never going to come to this church. So if you have a way that you think we could maybe, you know, invite them to know the love of God, we would be really open to that. So that's not everybody. I think where, where people get paralyzed, you can't expect your whole congregation to get on board with this because they're just not. And there's a degree of, you know, caring for the center, growing the center, loving the people that have been holding the church together for decades and experimenting on the edge. And so every pastor, clergy, and I mean, pretty much Christian has to be able to do both really is to care for the center, stimulate the edge, experiment on the edge. And that that where we get stuck, I think we have to set good boundaries with our congregations and say, you know, 
I'm, I personally don't go to my office and I've been at my church long enough where I can get away with that. And I kind of set that boundary in the beginning and I took the door off my office hinges. My first sermon series was called the open door policy. And I put it in the sanctuary and I said, Hey, I'm not going to be in the office because John Wesley said the world is my parish and I'm sent here and I'm paraphrasing what I said in a much more loving and graceful way, but I'm not here to be your spiritual butler. I'm here to be a pastor to this whole community, not just the congregation, because that's our, and those of who are listening in the Methodist tradition, that's kind of our, our posture, right? So I'm going to be out in the community, and that is work for the church, too. It's not just when I'm sitting in the office that I'm on the clock. When I'm sitting at Moe's Southwest Grill talking to Adrian, which evolved into a church in the Moe's Southwest Grill, that's part of my work for Wildwood UMC, too. When I'm getting to know the servers at the local coffee shop and connecting with them, that's part of my work. So kind of boundaries are really important, helping people understand that no amount of me sitting in the office is going to make this church, you know, vital again. It's going to take all of us going out into the community and connecting with people. So if you just start with a team of people that that are for this idea and, and you get those people and you just kind of throw spaghetti at the wall and ideate around some things. Ask, do I have some persons of peace? Jesus says, find those people. Luke 10, they're the people that invite you in to whatever practice or network or hobby. And they say, yeah, you know, come and join me and do life at their table. Jesus says, do we have third places that we have our organic connections with already? Can we turn our church property into third places? And can we do different things with our church property that's not just about worship. Um, like, can we house inpatient treatment facilities and give people a free space to come in and use Wi-Fi if they're, um, you know, technologically uh, uh, vulnerable and they don't have access to those things? Can we provide those things as a kind of a community and resource hub and as the church? So those are some some things that we just have to kind of rethink. And it's it's gradual. You know, over time, it's it's not all that's going to happen overnight. It's can we get a couple ideas up and running, get some energy going? Right, that's beautiful. Yeah, as a corollary to that question, I kind of want to ask you, Michael, about overcoming inertia because one of the things that I found is is often in brainstorming sessions, uh, folks are caught in very similar loops to the same loops that they've been caught in for years. And so a lot of the ideas that emerge are ideas that are kind of tried and true and often relate back to like the same 10 things that people have been doing for decades and generations. It's almost as if the lived experience of particular religious communities develops a certain kind of tradition on its own that's not necessarily like an orthodoxy, so to speak, but it's just kind of this like lived practice that's uh, habitual, but also has carries its own kind of significance. And so can you talk a little bit about the process of ideation, brainstorming, design thinking, and how that leads to some of these ideas that you're talking about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, people get, people get stuck in the toxic loop of, um, you know, we've never done it that way before and this worked in the past so what if we tried this but in a different way or whatever but the end goal is usually always like how do we get people to come to church and give money and fill our worship services 
So recovering the why, and this is part of the beauty of design thinking, like we don't actually exist to fill people in that building. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build this church. The gates of hell will prevail against it. And I want you to build a bunch of buildings and pack people into them. That was not the call, right? So challenging that, awakening people to that and thinking, you know, just kind of exposing it, like naming it. And then in a scriptural way, showing the stories of, you know, of how Jesus did that and what really his heart and intent was in ministry. But the cool thing about design thinking is if you just open up space for people to like throw whatever wild ideas they have and no idea is a bad idea um, and and let them put it up there. And but then the next step of of design thinking, so human centered design is about what are the actual problems that people are facing? What are the challenges of the people in our community? And that question is what leads to all this fresh expressions, missional vitality stuff. It's not what questions are we wrestling with, which is mostly about how do we get people to come back to Bible study or the worship service? But we ask the different question of what is the experience of the people in this community? What are their hurts and their struggles? Where's the pain points where we can join in with Jesus um, and what in their lives, their daily lives. And that's the one step of the um, design thing is immersion. So immersing ourselves in the people's world and problems. And so if we can do that in creative ways, like prayer walks are always great to get our people out in the community, walk in, just not knocking on people's doors, not passing out flyers or anything, but just praying over the neighborhood and getting our folks to observe the neighborhood. And, and really, sometimes the main observation that comes out of that is how much it's changed and how much it's not the way that we actually thought it was. But the neighborhood's changed all around us, and we just haven't really been seeing it. And the only way to see that is to actually get out and immerse ourselves in the context itself. And then equipping, empowering people and saying, hey, um, you know, every meeting we have doesn't have to happen here at the church. What if we have our meeting at the coffee shop? or what if rather than you coming in uh, on this day to spend your time doing this, what if you took spent that same time in a space that you love to just in, try and intentionally connect with people in that space? So that's all about that immersion of the design thinking thing. And then see what comes out of that. Like, you know, I met this really great person, Adrian, at Moe's. We love talking about Star Wars and he's on the dark side. And, I'm a, and he actually said, he would be cool if we came in and did a Bible study in his restaurant and he would even give us a discount on our food if we did that. And then people were like, Hmm, that sounds okay. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say, okay, go ahead try that. And, um, and then the story. So we collect the stories of the people who got baptized at the tattoo parlor or, you know, the guy that took communion for the first time at Moe's. And you bring those stories back and then you say to your people, we say to our people, hey, this is amazing. This is what happened. And guess what? Your prayers, presence, gifts, service, witness, your faithfulness here enabled us to do this thing this week. So let me tell you about Nick, who took communion for the first time. And I'm going to tell you his story. So then we're giving life back to the congregation and saying, hey, look what you're enabling to happen just by giving us permission and, and, and just by showing up here and doing your normal giving of yourselves to this congregation, that's enabling this whole other thing to happen. So it's not like we're leaving them in the rear view, but we're bringing them along. And then more and more people, they're like, you know what? Okay, I think 
I actually want to check this out for myself. And then I get 78 year olds at tattoo parlor church getting their first tattoo, uh, like Miss Sandra. So that, and there's this awesome cross pollination. Then you get people in the tattoo parlor who go, you know what? Christians aren't really a bunch of miserable, angry, hateful people. I think I'll actually come check out what's happening on Sunday morning. And so there's all these people kind of making the journey in different ways. Do you ever get people at the tattoo parlor church quoting Leviticus to you about tattoos? Oh, gosh. So many times. So many times. We actually have done more on that verse in tattoo parlor church than probably any other scripture. Because people, people that are getting tattoos, for one, want to know what's the response to this, right? And then people that, who are there to be critical are also, you know, looking for fodder to load their, their guns, kind of. What do you wind up saying to them, and how do you handle some of those kinds of interesting kind of scriptural theological boundaries? Yeah, um, it's a great question, and I think we have to be prepared for a little bit of theological mess and um, that people are coming from all different spaces. When you've got Christians, not yet Christians, I'm done with being a Christian, the church hurt me, and you got like people from a Calvinist leaning and Wesleyan all in these groups together or no leaning at all. Um, some pretty interesting stuff is going to come out. And so what the key thing for us is that we read the whole of scripture through a Jesus lens and that you have to read Genesis to revelation through the lens of Jesus. And if you don't, you're going to really get in some big trouble when you get to like, you know, stone your disobedient child. I've thought about doing that, but it's probably not a good idea. So the Leviticus passage, because you asked specifically about that. So in that passage, you have like, don't trim the corners of your beard. Don't cut your bangs. Don't eat shellfish. Don't eat anything with the blood in it. Don't, you know, let fruit lie fallow for a period of time. Um, don't mix different uh, threads in your clothing. So people take that chapter. They read all of that after they shave that morning for the guys cut their bangs if they're after they wore were wearing clothing with all kind of fabric and we ate you know seafood or something a cheeseburger that had blood in it uh, and then we go but tattoos now that's a no-no and so if, if you're going to read that whole thing you better go ahead and read the whole 613 of those restrictions and the amazing thing about reading it through the lens of jesus is jesus fulfills all of that and he he reframes a lot of it. So Jesus says, you've heard Leviticus say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, love your enemy. You know, you all are putting wives away for divorce, like uh, you change your underwear, but I tell you, anybody who's done this has already. So he's reframing in a, and in, in what would some would probably, I'm sure, then they did accuse him of a heresy and a way saying all of this, pointed to me. And so when he's with his disciples on the, on the, uh, uh, in the post-resurrection, he tells them the story and how all the scriptures point to him. So we're trying to help people. We, we actually start in all of our early fresh expressions, John, with Jesus stories and, and to get to avoid the theological kind of landmines. We just do it real simple. We, and anybody can do it like um, a clergy layperson can tell a Jesus story. So we're looking at this Jesus story today, the woman at the well, tell the story of what Jesus did in a real simple way. And then we ask some questions like if this Jesus story happened today, what would it look like? 
it's not a right or wrong question. It's not a theological debate question. It's just if this happened today, because there's not really sermons per se in the in these fresh expressions. There's sermonic conversations. So we share that Jesus story and then everybody gets a chance to feed into it. So people might say, well, I think if Jesus did that today, he would touch people with COVID or whatever. I feel that he would do this or whatever. And then that that is the sermon. Like we're engaging scripture. We're thinking about it theologically, but there's no like professional who's telling us. Now we do have to do some reframing. Sometimes people go way out in left field. And so we'll say things like, you know, that's a really interesting way to think about that. Here's another way to think about the, the, the historic church. And, you know, especially in a Wesleyan lens, we look at it like this. And so it's not telling somebody that's completely heretical and they're going to burn you at the stake if you ever say that in a church. We can say, here's some other ways to look at that. And then we let the Holy Spirit do the work of, you know, conviction and transformation and uh, enlightenment and awakening and all that stuff. That's not our job anyway. We couldn't do that even if we tried. So we're just creating space where God is working in all of that. People's conversations get really interesting. So that that's a stumbling block for some people. Like how do you, cause in the church, we're more about regulation than resourcing when we should be more about resourcing than regulation. But it's like how we resource these people who are having these conversations and thoughts rather than trying to regulate and say, Oh, we need to fix that is more like, what if we just give people space to explore spiritual questions and kind of come to their own convictions? Well, you know, that's a, a very Methodist thought. You know, Albert <laughs> Outler, who was a big Methodist theologian, was famous for advocating for mm. this idea that runs through Methodism that each person should be their own theologian. Right. And scripture, tradition, reason, and experience uh, is something that we're thinking about in these fresh expressions. It's kind of a re a reimagining of early Methodism where yes, scripture is primary. It's the floor of the house. Uh, tradition is guiding everything that we're doing. When people think about tradition, they typically think about it as this um, fixed in stone kind of thing where we're talking about a living tradition that is, that includes resurrection. <laughs> like, and innovation, which is the deepest tradition of Christians. We've been about social innovation, our whole existence, right? Creating new things that help people. And that's part of our tradition. So a change of state in being from like dead body in a tomb to same pot body. So there's continuity with the tradition, but new state. So that's part. And then, you know, experience and reason, like, this is a lot of people's struggles uh, and nuns and duns, if you want to use those categories, like this doesn't make any sense. So I have to just kind of mindlessly check my brain at the door and I can't ask questions and stuff. And that's how people feel in a lot of traditional churches. And what I think so life-giving and fresh expressions is exactly what you said, John, is each person's getting to be kind of their own theologian and they're thinking about through the lens of their own experience. And I can ask that question in a fresh expression and nobody's going to look at me crazy or throw me out of the building, right? Because everybody's asking questions and it's it's okay to do that. It's a safe space. And you get a much deeper spiritual experience and, and a, I think a much more profound discipleship experience when you allow people to do that rather than just telling them this is what you need to believe kind of stuff. Yeah, the, 
sermonic conversations, as you call them, really do open up that that gate of uh, allowing people to explore. I think, especially at my first appointment, they had a contemporary worship service that sort of evaporated into nothing by the time I got there. And it was like, maybe at most, you know, 10, 15 people. So I decided to throw the whole sort of order out the window, you know, keep the music and then just turn it into like a really large sort of conversation based on like, all right, this is, this is the the scripture that we've prepared. And these are the points of the larger sermon that I'm going to share at the other service and, you know, just opening it up to people. I think again, that, that freedom that, that folks uh, never really experienced was, was uh, really the catalyst that, you know, helped people, especially in that time, because they were grieving, you know, the, the death of this, this experience that they've had for years, but, you know, taking that outside of the church, you sort of, you know, let down all the uh, crazy churchy expectations that are sort of there. Like I have to sit, I have to sit a certain way and I have to pray a certain way. And so at least for my experience, you know, that, that was the most, those were the most fun sermons that I've ever, you know, shared. And I guess my question would be, how do you maybe equip others to, to share in those sorts of ways? You know, you did mention like anyone could share a Jesus story, but we might have a listener or two like think about like, well, I want to do it. So what might be the first step or do I need to, you know, have read the entire Bible at least once? So like, you know, how would you empower someone to, to give a Jesus story? So in the Fresh Expressions of the Digital Age book, those Jesus questions that I just lifted up are in there. And there's kind of this process or journey that somebody may want to take if they wanted to kind of cultivate a new Christian community. And um, that, that if that might be helpful resource for people. But I think the short answer is when when these it's part of the DNA of the of the of the community from the beginning. So people are sharing the Jesus story somebody's got to model that out, like what you were doing, Gary, you were modeling that behavior. So then somebody else takes a Jesus story and, and then somebody goes, man, well, you know, that wasn't that hard. They did that. I'm going to try that. And so you get to the point with them, like people, you have to find a way for the people that are coming to not just be passive recipients, but to step in and kind of bring their voice to what's happening so the Jesus stories are a great way to do that. And I just intentionally ask people, hey, you want to give the Jesus story next week? What's your favorite story from Jesus's you know, life? And just give them a space to experiment. I find when we give people, lay people, the opportunity to, to, to try, then they discover their calling and they discover that they can do this and that um, it's not that complicated and it should have never been that complicated. Jesus didn't design the church to be complicated. He took a bunch of small group of gals and guys on the job training, modeled the behavior he wanted to see in them and then turned it over to them. Right. In a very short period of time. So I think we have to rethink that in, in the local church, how we're doing that. And it's about giving people space. It's about inviting people. If they feel like they need a little help, I'm always willing to work with them and say, you know, here's how, here's a way to deliver a story, kind of set the tension a little bit and give them some mechanics of it if they need that. But I find the opposite has been true. Like people overthink it 
and they're studying diligently and they're like, I want to, I want to get this right and do this. And I'm like, just, uh, just show up. And that's great. You did all that study and just tell the story that's in there and then ask these questions. So the questions give, so the first one is like, if this story happened today, what would it look like? If this story is true, uh, how would it make a difference in my life? Those kind of questions. So that the, 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 um, energy the the expectation is not just on the storyteller but as they offer the questions everybody in the community gets to to feed into it and then it kind of takes off like a runaway train so all the emphasis is not just on the person who's tasked with bringing the story so i find that really helpful i kind of want to take us off in a weird direction you know do you guys ever talk about like augmented reality as part of your like digital experiences you know and this could be something as simple as the kind of cell phone games that utilize like a camera and Mm -hmm. you know ask you to sort of live in a digitally augmented world but you know i i think when we talk about augmented reality as a concept we're also kind of talking about fitness trackers and anything that integrates our digital world with our physical world in some way whether it be tracking data or creating a sort of new models and ways of seeing the world and marking the world and, and identifying things almost through a digital lens. So is that something that has come to mind in your conversations in some way, shape or form? So I am fascinated by all those things, John, they're not coming up in the conversations in the context that I'm working in. We've had some questions about virtual reality and, and, you know, virtual church, which Again, the, our friends in England are 20, 30 years ahead of us in this. And at Durham uh, University, they have uh, the Center for Digital Theology, which is overseen by Pete Phillips and Jonas Kroberg. And those friends are really ahead of us thinking about all this. And they've written books about digital theology and augmented reality. And anticipating some of the things like when somebody wants to marry their robot, and I'm a pastor, uh, no, is that okay? Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of really way to, and you know, there's been churches planted in second life. Uh, that's already been done. There's like, you know, new Christian communities that exist in uh, virtual space. So with the augmented reality, I don't have any firsthand experience with it, but I would say kind of how we're plugging into fitness culture and and it's more of a hybrid kind of idea but we're using like a meetup and you know creating these groups and people already have groups and we're participating in those and then start like a 5k church Um, so it's a mixture of technology the technology that connects us in the place fitness culture of running the 5k together and then the spirituality of um, sharing the jesus story and having people kind of feedback on that so but the, John, what you just lifted up, and I, I hope that young theologians like you all are going to take this forward, honestly, because we need significant work in digital theology and and praxis and what they call you know liquid ecclesiology in England. What are the rules in a digital space? What 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 are you know the best practices? What what is digital incarnation and um, all of these are questions we really haven't done a whole lot of deep wrestling with yet in in the United States, and we really have to 
start focusing on those things because digital if covid's taught us anything it's that digital's here to stay we figured out that we can be church in digital space and a lot of people that were actually physical attendees are not going to come back they're going to stay in the digital space because they like it and it's meaningful um, others will come back but not everybody and people are going to most people in the network society are going to have their first encounter with the church with Jesus in a digital space there, there's not going to be a massive influx of people that are going to suddenly go, I think I'm going to go check out Sunday morning worship services. So as we create these digital kind of expressions, that's going to be people's first experience with a Christian. Yeah. You know, this, this podcast is for several of us, our first sort of major foray into digital media. You know, there, there've been YouTube videos and various other kinds of things that we've done. But, you know, it occurs to me that there really there isn't such a thing as as far as I'm aware, there isn't really such a thing as like a good church app. You mm. know, there's not something I can download on my phone and say, well, I'm I'm really going to church this Sunday or I'm paying, you know, like a dollar or giving some kind of offering that I choose in order to access content through this app, you know. Right. I, I should probably copyright that now that I've spoken that out loud because <laughs> it doesn't seem like anybody's doing that. But, you know, it, it comes to mind that, it, you know, the technology is already getting ahead of us <laughs> and, and we're still trying to come back up to, you know, technologies mm. that have been around for 10 to 15 years. Yes. And and recreate our faith spaces around and using those technologies that have been around for 15 years but then things are still moving and developing and changing and going kind of in that you know futuristic direction yeah you need to get to work on that app john because seriously um you know a lot of churches have apps but it's more about their church and how you can access the teachings or give online or whatever but what I hear you talking about is like spiritual tools that help people develop in their faith walk um, who may not ever go to any church specifically. And that is like this whole field that's unexplored. I was talking to uh, one of the students coming to United and th this is her focus. And she feels like it's kind of like the wild west right now that within the digital theology world, we're getting to play in a big old sandbox and figure things out as we go. And for people who like that kind of stuff, it's like the best time ever to be alive. But I think another thing to think about with what you just said is how do we use those simple technologies been around forever in a more of an incarnational posture? Like I believe every congregation can and should at least plant a Facebook campus of their church. I mean, there's several billion people on Facebook every day. People already hang out there. They already go on there every day, users all over the world. So if we knew that there was a church and the, the specific numbers slip in my mind right now, but it's billions of Facebook users. If we knew that there was that many people all hanging out in one spot every day, wouldn't we want to go plant a church there? So it's, it's not a threat to the existing congregation, but having like a Facebook campus, a Facebook group uh, that has its own kind of worship experience, its own kind of prayer offerings and those kind of things. That's like a simple thing that 
you know, any church can do doesn't cost you anything. And Facebook's mission uh, or their their kind of stated mission and to create community with people that really vibes with what we're trying to do as Christians is create community. So why don't we partner with them? And and I know I'm just using one particular um, technological platform, but thinking about those kind of things is really important, I think, for churches right now, because the idea that we're just going to go back to normal and people are going to flood into our congregations one day is, uh, I think that's wishful thinking. I hope that happens. That would be amazing. But I don't think any of the signs or trajectories look like that's going to happen. So we'll have our Logosis app, uh, John. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll plant something really weird, really cool. And this is something that I always tend to ask folks. But for you, Michael, what is the... What is the strangest fresh expression that you've come across, maybe that you've done or that uh, you've seen other people do that you just had no idea, didn't even think about it? And strangest just sounds up. so judgy, Garrett. <laughs> what is the most Holy Spirit led? No. <laughs> I, I think um, there's a really cool thing happening at a Bruxy Cavey's church up in um, the meeting house up in Canada and a couple others spread across the U S where they're doing dungeons and dragons church. Um, I played D and D when I was a kid and that kind of, that was my whole education actually. Cause I dropped out of high school, but I think that's awesome. Like I haven't been able to, to do anything like that, but tabletop gaming is like massive dungeons and dragons. Some people are doing really cool gamer church stuff and like the second life stuff where you're they're trying to create church in those digital like uh, virtual reality spaces i think some of the most gritty ones that probably i wouldn't try was like a, a fresh expression in a uh, 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 what's the proper name for this a strip bar i'm not sure how to say it but that place where strippers inhabit a guy in Jacksonville, I, I thought, you know, I wouldn't start that one myself just with, I would bring all my own issues to that, but planting a church in a, in a strip joint was his dream. And um, he started trying to experiment with that. So I think it, there's really, and I'm not, I'm pretty sure Jesus probably would do that. He would probably plant a church right there too. So I'm not speaking against it. I'm just saying those are some of the more creative, edgy, weird to use your language fresh expressions that i've seen yeah that's pretty awesome yeah uh yeah it's it's interesting the 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 types of communities that have always existed but are a little bit more out in the open now to think dungeons and dragons which was you know like you would you would never want to be caught dead you know back in the day playing <laughs> that and now is sort of really become a part of a large population today like it's sort of like resurged and there's new folks to it and old folks and sort of like doing that church work of like bringing together the generation so yeah that's that's pretty cool that you brought that up but yeah that's that's awesome so since it has come up what are you going to do michael beck when somebody asks to marry their robot oh man i haven't thought deeply enough really about to give a good answer to this this is where we bring the hard questions michael i i'm gonna say on that one i i i would 
validate their relationship with their robot. I would tell them how beautiful it is that they have found that, but I'm personally not going to marry them to a robot. That could change over time. I'm just giving my my instinct now. <laughs> I haven't thought about it at all, but well, I'm I'm sure there's a difference between a Roomba and like real artificial intelligence. Though real artificial intelligence and and digitizing brains or some cyberpunk stuff like that probably has other major implications that we should probably be thinking right. through. Right. Right. Yeah. We have to uh, look at our brothers and sisters in Japan. I think those. Those are already happening. So, you know, yeah. maybe we'll take some field notes over there. Right. But, you know, thus the, the, the work that needs to be done in uh, digital theology and start thinking about these things now, it's not nearly as controversial as what you just said, John. But one of the hypotheticals I like to give our students is well, when we colonize Mars here in the next couple of decades, and, you know, there's supposed to be so many thousand people living on Mars by 2050 or whatever. Um, don't quote me on those numbers, but that'll happen. And um, the first person wants to become a Christian on Mars. Uh, how are we going to facilitate the first person on the planet becoming a Christian? I've taken some fire about, you know, online communion and online baptism and those things. Um, but when, when, when a student's forced to think about there's really is no other way except through distance contact, except through a digital medium that this could happen then it puts you in a new space of thinking, right? Because, I mean, we have people that are stuck on just like we shouldn't even be doing communi communion digitally or baptisms and those kind of things. So you raise big questions that I'm, I'm not prepared to answer. Well, now I'm sitting here wondering what the light delay between Mars and Earth would be and whether or not you could even do like a real-time conversation. Mm. Well, you know, uh, sacramental necessity, you know, we've been down that road before, right? So eventually we'll just say, I was like, all right, you're the guy <laughs> or yep. gal and, uh, and kind of go from there, you know? <laughs> well, this has been a very cool conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. I have one final question for you. We end on it each week. We always try to end on a high note, uh, but what is bringing you joy right now? Well, that's easy for me right now coming out of COVID. It's it's to watch the everyday people of God who are, in my context, lay people, step into their calling and and uh, deliver sermonic conversations and teach and, and serve what would have been thought of as a pastoral function in the past. And they are just doing that. And it's beautiful to watch and be a part of. And I think Jesus... His plan to heal the world was leaving a church, um, a community of people that are bearers of his risenness. And that if every person saw my part of my discipleship or part of my relationship with Jesus was about that when I grow up, I'm going to form a new Christian community of some sort with the people that I hang out with every day. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be about trying to invite them back to a church. It's going to be about Hey, we already do this thing together. Do y'all mind if I pray next week? Who would be open to that? And those kind of things. So I just am really excited about hope of the church. I feel like as hard as COVID has been, and I've lost family and friends, and Jill and I have done funerals like through Zoom for our own loved ones. And it's been really hard. And I don't want to minimize that in any way, but it has given the church a massive gift to to rethink 
our assumptions and to to break us free of some very confining paradigms of thought around what the church can be and who can lead it. And I just see so much hope right now and the creativity of people just even streaming a service. That that was a new wineskin for lots of people, right? And Christians just jumped out there and tried it and we did it bad. I'm one, I'm raising my hand to that. Um, but we broke the internet even. And, and just the spirit of innovation, it just feels really like that's been unleashed right now. I love it. Thank you so much for that. What about you, Garrett? What's given you joy? Well, since everything sort of upended at our house, uh, sort of the simple things. Recently, Laurel and I have been sitting out on our porch, like in the morning, just kind of waking up and acclimating to the world a little bit and trying to limit a little screen time, you know, at the start of the day or just being surrounded by a whole bunch of clutter. There's not, there's nothing in the backyard. So I think we're just kind of escaping to there, but just a little simple thing of, of, being together and just kind of waking up and watching the the world around us sort of wake up as well. It's been really cool. That's great. That's awesome. For me, it's kind of a weird rabbit hole that I went down, but occasionally I think like a a lot of people who are semi-public figures or public figures, you know, occasionally you have to Google yourself just to see what's happening. And the other day I um, typed my name into Google and saw that there was an IMDB page for somebody who has their name spelled exactly like I was. And I said, oh, that's weird. I've never seen another person with my name and the precise spelling of my name. And I clicked on it and I looked at it for a minute and I said, wouldn't it be weird if this was me? And it was, it was just for like a production credit in an independent film. And so I started like Googling around the independent film and figured out that it was in fact me. <laughs> and I, I had given a friend, uh, I guess a little bit of cash back in college to make an indie film. And over the course of several years, it took some time for it to come out. And for whatever reason, it's, it's finally made its way into the top Google rankings for my name. So she <laughs> put together this film and um, had a lot of fun doing it, I guess. But like, it was so random to see that to, to see my name like on that kind of thing. So I guess I can add producer to my resume now <laughs> at this point. So that brought me a weird amount of joy and, a, and weirdness at the same time. But yeah, it's been a great conversation, guys. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you in the digital sphere? Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been awesome. Um, it's been really life-giving to be with you guys. My, my personal website is michaeladambeck.com. Uh, all my books and stuff and I blog and all that good stuff is on there. And any of the books that we referenced here can be found on Amazon. Fresh Expressions in a Digital Age. Most of our conversation today, would you can find a lot if you want to go deeper with any of those ideas. But I just had a new book come out uh, called Deep and Wild. And it's the part two of Deep Roots Wild Branches. And um, that again, I'm, I'm trying to go deeper into this idea of a blended ecology and how to do the the both and kind of form of church very cool well thank you so much for joining us check that out check us out online at logosish.com and please like and subscribe wherever you found this podcast we also now have a bookshop on bookshop.org slash logosishpod so check that out 
and you could purchase some of the books that we've featured on the podcast, help support local bookstores, and help support us because we are getting going and rolling, and we're really excited about some of the stuff we are doing with this podcast, and we would love, love, love to have your support, and maybe even some comments and things that we can start reading on air, just some good shout-outs to people. Thank you so much for joining us today, and have a great week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod, as well as on various other social media platforms. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast so that we can keep getting the word out to all the people we can about all the stuff we're working on. And we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a great week.